Good morning. How are we? Lovely to see lots of faces. Some of you I know, some of you I don't know. It's a privilege to, to come this morning and, and preach. Uh, I've known John for a few years now. I'm very, very glad to hear there's lots of uh, Kiwis in the room. Or a few few Kiwis in the room, I feel very at home, so uh, it's a privilege. This morning I want to speak about the importance of being people of the Word. So hopefully you've got your Word with you, because uh, unfortunately we couldn't quite get te- technology to work for us this morning, so you'll have to do things the old-fashioned way and and look up passages uh, with me this morning. But there's an old story of a man who went to his lawyer to finalise his mother's estate and in meeting with his lawyer, he told him that his mother had left him a small fortune. Uh, So his, his lawyer read to him his mother's will, which had left him $20,000, and quote, my Bible and all it contains. The man said, I want the money, but, you know, the Bible, I don't want that, you know, religious junk. So he uh, took it home and he stored it on a nice high shelf and stuck it up there and and didn't even bother to open it. And then he took his $20,000 and went off to Vegas and, and spent it on you know, fast living and uh, all sorts of pleasures and desires. And he spent all his money and spent the rest of his life living as a poor man. Uh, he got so desperate, in fact, that he ended up having to move in with, with relatives. And as an old man moving out of his house, he, he reached up with his trembling old hands to get the Bible off the shelf as he was moving out and his trembling old hands dropped it to the floor and it opened up revealing $100 bills between every page. The man had lived as a pauper simply because of his prejudice towards the Bible. He thought he knew all that it contained. And sadly, many in Christendom aren't much better when it comes to their devotion to the scriptures because they, they store it on a nice shelf and it sits there gathering dust. Or they, they pull, it, pull it down in order to, you know, maybe someone's Someone's died, uh, and they, they come and open up their scripture and read a few nice verses, or they pull it out when life gets tough. And often they think that they know what the Bible contains. Second Timothy 3.16, we're going to touch on this a few times this morning. It's a very familiar passage that I'm sure you've heard before. 2 Timothy 
3.16. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. This is interesting because if the scripture is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, then it would seem to me that if you don't read the scriptures, then you're going to be unprofitable, untested, uncorrected, and lacking instruction and righteousness. Does that make sense? If we fail, fail to read it, because that's what it's profitable for. And if we don't read it, it's not going to be profitable to us. And we all know what, you know, if, if we don't read it and we're left untaught and untested and without instruction in right living, you know, we, we all know what children are like who are left untaught and uncorrected and without instruction in how to conduct themselves. It's interesting because in verse 17, it, it also suggests that neglecting the scriptures will leave us incomplete and unequipped for good works. Which is interesting because according to Ephesians, that is one of the primary reasons we've been saved is for good works. For by grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourselves, not of works, that no one should boast. Let me get it up. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. One of the reasons we've been saved is to go forth and do good works. You know, go forth with the gospel, preach the gospel to others. People often ask, oh, now that I've been saved, why doesn't God just take me up to heaven and save me all this trouble that we have here on earth? One of the reasons is because there's other people who need the gospel. And so it's our responsibility to go forth with them. But we've been saved for good works. And if that's the case, then we must ensure that we are equipped to carry out those good works. Which means, based on 2 Timothy, we need to be in the, the Word, in the Scriptures, because it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped or furnished for every good work. Does that make sense? 
hope so. So, my first point this morning, before we get too carried away, is we need to take a step back as to what is the what does Scripture teach us? Why is it so important that as Christians we are people of the Word? And I think there's something fundamental that necessitates our study of Scripture, personal study of Scripture, is what I'm primarily referring to. Because I've spoken to lots of people out on the street. I go out onto the street uh, witnessing to evangelise. And they tell me that they don't believe the Scripture is the written word of God. They don't hold it as authoritative. But they still believe in Jesus and they still believe in God. And, I mean, it's sad because there's actually whole denominations now that aren't that much different, um, where they kind of throw away the scriptures, and, but they still hold to this tradition of Jesus and God. And, you know, they hold on to heaven and maybe throw out hell. Uh, they pick and choose. But my question is, is who is Jesus and who is God if we don't have the Bible as a reference? Where do we get our understanding about God if it's not from the Holy Scriptures? Do we just make it up in our heads? Do we just formulate a God of our own making? Because that's really all we're left with if we don't come to know God and know about him from his revealed word. If this is not where we learn about God, then we're either going to learn it from someone else's opinion or we're going to make it up ourselves. If the Bible is not accurate and truthful when it talks about things like the judgment and the wrath of God, as some, you know, they, they like to throw out those, those bad bits, shall we say, then if it's not accurate when it talks about that aspect, then it can't be trusted when it speaks about the love of God either. Does that make sense? If you don't believe the, what it says about the physical resurrection of Jesus then how are you going to believe when it talks about the sacrificial death of Jesus? If we don't believe what it says in the beginning, in Genesis, about the creation of the world, then why would we believe what it says about the end, the coming new heavens and new earth? The, the scripture is not a, a compilation of interesting bits of wisdom that we just take the parts that we like and apply, you know, and just live our lives according to the bits we like. It is a it's a whole book, it's a whole revelation of God 
And as that verse in 2 Timothy says, all scripture is profitable. Not just the little few bits that we like. Maybe John 3.16. All scripture is profitable. And so, the most fundamental reason we must know the scriptures and study the scriptures is because it is primarily a revelation of God and about God. It's a revelation about God. This is how we know God, know about his character, know what he requires of us. It is a revelation. And all these pages teach us about Jesus. For example, we know that God is trustworthy. I'm, I'm, I'm hoping you know that God is trustworthy. We know God is trustworthy because of the testimony of his word. We see that he's trustworthy. We know God is merciful because we read it, we see it, and we experience it. We know God is merciful. We know God is creative because we have a, a record of his creativity and we can see the testimony of his creativity all around us. But everything we know about God is found here. And so if you want to know God, which I'm hoping you, know, you want to know God, because I don't know kind of the reason to come to church if you don't want to know God, but if you want to know God, then this is your reference to know God and to know about God. If you don't really want to know God, then this should actually still be your reference because it tells you what happens to those who reject God. So it would be still a good idea to read it, to, to find out your fate, if you don't want to know God, but I trust that you do. It's interesting because what you get out of the scripture, the message that you get, the information, that the, the teaching that you get, often depends on your motivation for reading it. For example... I know many atheists who read the Bible. In fact, many atheists read the Bible more than Christians do. But they read it with the motivation of trying to find errors. And you know what? They find so-called contradictions. Supposed contradictions. Celebrity gurus and presidential candidates, they read the Bible. But it's the motivation for reading it is to find some quirky little you know, wise saying. Maybe they open up Proverbs to make themselves seem smart. And you know what they find? They find many wise sayings. A religious person reads the Bible out of some form of a duty that oh, I have to read the Bible because that's what a Christian does. And so they 
they drudgingly read through it. And you know what they get out of it? They get a good night's sleep because they've done their duty. But we should read it because we want to know our God. We want to know Christ. And this is his revelation about himself. In John, the Gospel of John, chapter 1, we read, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Now, if you look at the, the Greek word there, uh, Jesus is the logos, or the living word. So in the beginning was the logos. The logos was with God, and the logos was God. In other words, Jesus is the creator. And then if we go right back to the beginning in Genesis, Genesis 1, you'll see a very similar passage. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without, or the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the water, then God said, let there be light, and there was light. So God spoke everything to existence. Here we see the word in the beginning, speaking everything to existence. Jesus Christ, the creator of all things. And then as we continue to read from Genesis, and you read onwards, you begin to see Jesus revealed. You begin to see his handiwork, and you see the, the shadow of his redemptive work slowly coming together, this picture of what the anointed one, or the Christ, the Messiah, what he would look, look like, or what he would do and how he would come and rescue his people. We see the, the ark that saved eight people from judgment. God's grace, God's salvation. We see in the Passover picture, the blood on the doorposts, protecting people from judgment. But throughout scripture, we see this picture unfolding of God's plan of redemption and the coming Messiah. And then, when Jesus comes, he finally comes, the promised one has come. The Pharisees miss it. Not because it wasn't obvious, but because their hearts were proud and boastful. The Pharisees 
look to the Scriptures. In one respect, they looked to the Scriptures for eternal life, but they erred in this respect. They looked into the letter of the pages for eternal life rather than recognizing the one to which the letters revealed. They thought that if they could just follow the letter of the law, then they would have eternal life. But they missed the bigger picture. They didn't see who the letter of the law was pointing to. It was pointing to Jesus. It's always pointed to Jesus. And in John, I believe you guys are going through John at the moment, aren't you? I hope I don't contradict what John says. John Shipman. But in John chapter 5, you see what... uh, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. In these, it is these that testify about me. And you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. I do not receive glory from men, but I know you, that you do not have the love of God in yourselves. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another, and you do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God? Do you think that I will accuse you before the Father? The one who accuses you is Moses in whom you have set your hope. For if you had believed Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? They were looking at the minute details of the law but they missed the bigger picture. The scriptures have always pointed to Jesus. They've always pointed, even right from the beginning in Genesis, we see the promise of the seed, the seed that would crush the serpent's head. We see this picture that gets built upon throughout the Old Testament scriptures. The promise of the seed that was to come, who was, of course, Jesus. The scriptures foretold of Christ's coming. They they foretold of his crucifixion. They foretold of his resurrection from the dead. In fact, they foretell the very day that he was to ride in on the donkey, one of the prophecies. But the Pharisees, they missed it. And it wasn't just the Pharisees who missed it. Because as we read the first report after Jesus had risen from the dead, we get this insight from uh, two people on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24. And he said to them, 
O foolish men, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. He started from Moses. Now, the first five books of the Bible were compiled by Moses. So he starts from the beginning and he works through the prophets, showing himself throughout the scriptures. The scriptures are about Jesus. But the disciples weren't that much better to some extent than the Pharisees. But to be honest, I don't know how much better we would be either. Because you know, we, we call ourselves Christ's ones or Christians. We, we say that we're people of the book. But if we're honest with ourselves... I'll speak for myself because I don't know you, you lot all that well, but we're probably more biblically illiterate, more or less, than a 12-year-old Jewish boy from Jesus' day. Because a 12-year-old Jewish boy in Jesus' day could memorize or memorize whole portions of scripture. Now I don't know if I could quote more than a few verses from, from any one book off the top of my head. But it, it, this reveals something about our priority or our, our view of scripture is how important is it to us? Do we take the time to commit it to memory? Do we take the time to search it diligently, to see Christ throughout its pages? Or is it just something that we open up on a Sunday because that's what everybody does? You know, it's an interesting test. Um, if I was to ask where was the Messiah going to be born. I know just about everyone in here would better tell me. And that's because it's part of the Christmas story. But if I was to ask, where was it prophesied? Does anyone know? Where was the promise of the, that he would be born in Bethlehem? Prophesied. Now I've got the cheat answer here. It's Micah, uh, Micah chapter 5 verse 2. But what about uh, where does it mention in the Old Testament that Jesus was, that the Messiah was to be killed? Does anyone know? There's two places actually where it predicts that the Messiah was to be cut off out of the land of the living. One is in Isaiah 53, that's the more familiar one, um, but also in, in Daniel chapter 9, it prophesies that the Messiah was to be cut off and killed, which of course was a surprise to some extent for many uh, in Israel because they thought he was going to rescue them. He was going to rescue them, but not in exactly the same way as they had hoped. 
Um, but the point I mention this is because it's very easy for us to criticise the Pharisees. But how much better are we than them? We, we kind of get spoon-fed information uh, from our pastors and our teachers, but how much do we actually study the scriptures out of a genuine motivation to know God and out of a genuine motivation to know more about him and because we love him? It's, it's very easy for us to follow each command you know, given by the disciples and do the right actions. You know, we can get up early in the morning, set an alarm, we can pray for 35 and a half minutes, we can go to church six times a week, we can put off smoking and alcohol and, and lying and stealing, but if we don't know Jesus, if we miss him in all that we do, then it's for nothing. It profits us nothing. If we do the right actions, because salvation doesn't come by doing the right actions. It comes through knowing Christ. It comes through Jesus. Thankfully, as we read the mistakes of the Pharisees and we read the mistakes of the Israelites and disciples, you know, we can look back in hindsight and learn from them because they are given to us as examples that we would learn from them. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 says, Now these, happened, these things happened as examples for us so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Nor let us act immorally as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in one day. Let us not try the Lord as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did and was destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed, lest he does not fall. That Take heed that he does not fall. Time and time again, Israel failed to heed the words of God, and these have been recorded for our benefit that we would not follow in that same way. It's so easy to shake our heads <clears throat> at Israel and go, oh, useless bunch of people they are. And yet, you know, we should have some self-reflection perhaps and think, you know, would, are we doing the same thing? Are we neglecting the things of God, neglecting his word? The only way we can heed the word of God is if we know what it says. Which means we need to be reading it.
I don't think there's, there's any other, there's probably lots actually, um, motivations for the importance of God's word than to know that God himself puts his word at the same level as his name. That's how important his, his word is. In fact, in, in Psalm 138, it says, I will bow down toward your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your loving kindness and your truth. For you have magnified your word according to your name. Some translations say above your name, but, um, but he's, he's magnified his word that come out of his mouth that he has revealed to us according to his name. Psalm 138. In the NLT it says, I bow before your holy temple as I worship. I praise your name for your unfailing love and faithfulness, for your promises, or your word, are backed by all the honour of your name. That's why we, you know, his word shouldn't be trifled with. It shouldn't be ignored. God is serious about what he has said and what is written. What authority did Jesus go to when he was tempted by Satan in the wilderness? He said, it is written. And then again he says, on the other hand, it is written. Because even even Satan tried to use or manipulate scripture for his own purposes, but Jesus came back, it is written. This was his authority that even Jesus used. And it's interesting because even as you read in Genesis, what, what was the first scheme of the devil? It was to subvert God's word. Did God really say to Eve? Right at the beginning, that's his first tactic, is to get people to doubt God's word, get them to forget about it, to ignore it. Because he knows that if, if he can get you to neglect or reject God's word, then he's got you right where he needs you. Because if we reject or neglect, which are kind of almost the same thing, God's word, then we, to some extent we're going to be doing the will of the, the, will of the evil one. That's all he needs, is for us to be ignorant of what God wants us to do. To be ignorant of God's purposes and God's ways and God's commands. He just, want, he just needs the church to neglect it or reject it. Both of which, if you look in Christendom these days, has largely happened. As people have either neglected the scriptures or they've rejected it entirely. So, just to recap, point one, I won't go too long, I'll try not. Uh, How can you know who God is without a revelation of him? God has invested himself into his word so that you can know him. Second point, regarding the importance 
of being people of the word. It's the issue of salvation. Salvation is not some ethereal mumbo-jumbo concept that we just make up in our own heads. Salvation is a person. Salvation is Jesus Christ. But it comes from putting our faith or our trust in him. And so on the foundation of the first point about knowing God, we need the scriptures so that we know who Jesus is and what he has done for us. So we know the gospel. The scripture says, faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of God. So we can exercise faith in him, in Christ. So when we go out and preach the gospel to the lost, which I hope we do, we are, or should be, sharing the testimony of Jesus from the scriptures, sharing the good news, the gospel, as revealed to us in the scriptures. As we do that, we explain the, the righteous requirements of God from the scriptures. We tell of the coming judgment of God from the scriptures. We share the great news of Jesus dying on the cross for the sins of the world from the scriptures and his resurrection from the dead from the scriptures. It all comes back to the scripture because what is the gospel if we don't have the scripture? What is the good news? Well, we learn about it from here. This is our authority. This is our reference point is here. And, and as we preach that, that word to the lost, the gospel, then the Holy Spirit can use that to convict them of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And they can believe the word that has been spoken concerning Jesus. They can put faith in what is, they put faith in God's word, which is what Abraham did. He believed God and it was accounted unto him for righteousness. God promised something, Abraham believed it. We preach the gospel, the good news about Jesus and his sacrifice, and people believe it. They trust that message. But if we're not preaching from the scripture, then what are people putting their trust in? If we're just preaching the latest, you know, cool message from our youth pastor, if we're just preaching this kind of humanistic Christianity that's prevailing today, then what are people putting their trust in? Are they putting their trust in the good news as revealed from here, or are they putting their trust in whatever man can make up, which seems to be all sorts of things that man can make up. And I think this is why Christendom is so full of unbelievers these days is because they've been sold a message that is not found or founded in God's word. 
the message that they've been sold is a life is, is a, a message of happiness and of life enhancement and come to Jesus and he'll fix all your earthly problems but it lacks judgment it lacks sin it lacks righteousness all the things that the scripture talks about and so people come wanting peace, joy, love, happiness, and happy juice. But then they come to a, you know, any church. No church is perfect. Uh, and they get all the trials of the Christian life and they walk away disappointed because they were sold the wrong message. They were sold man's good news rather than God's good news of sins forgiven of righteousness. That verse in Romans 10, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. It's not saying that faith is produced by hearing, but that faith is only possible after hearing. There's a distinction there. Because without hearing the word of God, there's nothing to have faith in. There's nothing to put our trust in or confidence in. A basic analogy might be that to abseil safely down a cliff, you need to trust a strong rope and a good harness if you want to safely abseil down a cliff. The rope and the harness don't produce your faith, or your trust, but without them, you've got nothing to put your trust in. Does that make sense? You, you, if you had the rope and the harness, but you refused to trust it, you're not going to get very far down the cliff. You're going to be up the top, shaking with fear. So you need to put your trust in the rope and the harness. The same way is if we don't believe the word of God, it will profit us nothing. But when we trust God's word and his testimony that he's revealed, then it's accounted unto, unto us for righteousness when we trust the gospel, trust the good news. And as, we, as you read the rest of Romans 10, you see that Israel heard the word of God, but they didn't believe it. They had the necessary rescue equipment, but they didn't trust them. I'm, I'm going to try and skip a few bits and pieces because I always take longer than, than I know you can endure. Back in Romans 10... In the same, same passage, it says, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? How will they hear without a preacher? What does a preacher do? He preaches the word. What does the hearer do? They listen to the word. 
And when they hear the word, they believe the word, or they could reject the word. But only if you hear the word can you believe it, and as this passage says, then you call on the name of the Lord. When you believe it, you call on the name of the Lord. Paul says, how how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? They must hear the word of God before they can believe on it and call on God. I bring up this passage because this phrase, call on the name of the Lord, is often abused in in Christianity. Uh, It's because it's, it's not some simple sinner's prayer where you spend 35 seconds repeating something after someone and then you're declared saved. That's not calling on the Lord, calling on the name of the Lord. The word call in this passage here is a Greek word epikaleia. It's most often translated as surname in the scriptures. For example, uh, in Acts, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, John Mark. Uh, In Acts again, and now send men to Joppa and call for one Simon, whose surname is Peter. It's named after someone. Call, up, call on the name of the Lord. It's, there's a, an authority, something above you. And it's interesting, the second verse, because it says, and call for one Simon, whose surname is Peter, has the word call there. Which, you know, in the English, we, we lose a lot of the meaning, call on the name of the Lord. But this call is different. This means to send after. You know, call after uh, Simon, whose Epikaleia is Peter, whose surname is Peter. Okay, so this this call and name of the Lord is just an Allah, Lord. It's a you must first believe God and come under Him as your authority. It's a, it's a lot deeper than what you know our common understanding of calling the name of the Lord because people I've seen people. <clears throat> this is scary. I've seen people go door knocking and they'll, they'll take a few passages from Romans and bits and pieces and they'll, they'll knock on the door of, this, of, of a complete unbeliever and they'll get them to repeat a few words and acknowledge and say, yes, I believe so and so. They get them to repeat a prayer and they say, you are now saved, congratulations, and they move on. Because the person spoke 10 words that they got them to speak, they've declared them saved, and they go to the next door. There's, there's no repentance. There's no uh, <laughs> surrendering before God. It's literally repeat these physical words, and supposedly you've called on the name of the Lord. Anyway, I'll, I'll try not to get on, on a tangent. But it's, it's important that this is why we need to be people of the word is because there are all sorts of kooky things going on in the world, even within Christendom, and if we're not reading it ourselves, then how do we discern all the crazy stuff going on? How do we know whether it's true or false? 
unless we look at the source and the reference ourselves. Otherwise, it's just, if, if we don't go to God for his instruction, then we're putting our faith in a person. We're putting our faith in what someone said. Oh, I believe this about God because so-and-so said it. You put your faith in them rather than putting your faith in what God has declared. Does that make sense? It's, I think that's one of the main problems in Christendom is we've relied on trusting another man who's trusted another man who's trusted another man rather than just going to the, the horse's mouth, as they say, rather than going to it ourselves and getting what God has taught us from the scriptures. All right, let me skip ahead. I want to also <clears throat> discuss the, the third and final reason why we need to be people of the word. We've talked about that it's in the word that we know about God. It's in the word that we, we know the message of salvation. But it's from the word that we are sanctified. What is sanctification? Sanctification is <clears throat> it's a consecration or purification of your life to be set apart for God's purposes. It's, it's, it's like holy. Holy is to be set apart for God's use. And that's what we are to be. We are to be consecrated. We are to be holy. We are to be sanctified for God's use. The first verse that we looked at, 2 Timothy, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man or lady of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Scripture is, is inspired, it's God-breathed. It's come forth from God, the scripture. Though it may have been penned by a man, it's, it ultimately came from the mind of God. What is it profitable for, though? Is it profitable for happiness in a good job? Fame and fortune? Is that what it's profitable for? Perhaps not. But a primary purpose is its ability to teach us sound doctrine, sound teaching. Its ability to test and prove us, to restore and correct us. And of course, proper instruction in the right way to live. That's what it means by instruction in righteousness. It would instruct us in the right way to live, how we ought to conduct ourselves, what God would require of us, what God wants us to do, how God wants us to, to be. It does all this so that we would be furnished and adequate for every good work, as I mentioned earlier. 
Hebrews 4, I'm sure you know this verse as well. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. God's word is not dry and dead. I may sound dry and dead sometimes, but God's word is not dry and dead, and it will not return void without accomplishing what God has intended for it. It's it's able to judge our thoughts. It's able to judge our intentions. And it's able to get into those... I don't know about you, but uh, I have a bit of a crazy brain, and we as humans are very capable of deceiving ourselves, very capable of lying to ourselves. But the Word of God is able to get in there and separate right behavior from wrong behavior. It's able to convict us where it sees pride and arrogance and self-deception. It's living and active. But if we're not reading it, if we're not in the Word, then how does it accomplish that? Romans 12, verse 2, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. This is an important point, because how do you renew your mind? How is your mind renewed? When you become a Christian, is it just an, an automated renewing that comes through the airwaves and you, your mind just starts to be renewed? Not according to Scripture. That's what the Word of God does. The Word of God is what renews our mind. As we read it and we dwell on it and we meditate on it, it begins to change the way we think. When we start to see things from God's perspective and we read you know, the epistles and we see how we ought to, to, ought to treat one another and respond to another, it changes the way we think. It renews our mind. It's not just some ethereal thing that just automatically happens. That's why you can have a Christian who's been a Christian for 30 years, and yet they're still a babe in Christ. They can still be very immature because they haven't given themselves to God's word. They haven't given themselves to renewing their mind. And that's also why you can get someone who's only been a Christian for a very short time, and yet they can be so mature because... They've given themselves to God. They've given themselves to seeing how God would have them act and behave. And if you if you read through through Scripture, it's got there's there's one here and actually in Romans twelve. I won't read it to you, but it's it's a list this long of things that you should do and should not do. You know, do not think too highly of yourselves. Do not have hypocr- uh, hypocritical love. 
abhor what is evil, cling to what is good, be devoted to one another, give preference to one another. These are not lovely lists that we post in our wall and ignore. These are things we ought to obey. That not to think too highly of ourselves. As we think about that and what the implications of that is, to not think too highly of ourselves and not to puff ourselves up, when that sinks in, it changes the way we interact. It changes the way we think. To abhor what is evil, when we dwell on that and think about it and obey it, it changes the way we behave and act. And through that process, we are sanctified, which is the will of God, that we would be sanctified. I want to read 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Finally, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus Christ that as you received us, received from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk. This is interesting because they've, they've requested how do we walk, how do we live, how do we please God. So just as Paul had told them before, that you excel, excel still more, for you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel, his body, in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion as the Gentiles do, who do not know God. That no man transgress, transgress and defraud his brother in the matter, because the Lord is the avenger of all these things. Just as we told you before and solemnly warn you, for God has not called us to the purpose of impurity, but sanctification. Sanctification is God's will for your life here. Your purpose here is not to just make lots of money and enjoy yourself in pleasures. If you're a Christian, a Christian is called out from the world. We are to be different from the world and we are to be sanctified for God's use, for God's purpose. We must be faithful in our duties and responsibilities and God will be faithful in his. Oftentimes I, I wish it was the case um, and sometimes we believe it's the case that when we put trust in Christ that he just magically and automatically makes us perfect or makes us sanctified and we just sit on the couch and watch TV but that's not the reality of the Christian life. In fact, if you do sit on the couch and watch TV, you'll probably get worse knowing what's on TV because that will be what, that will influence our mind and it will renew our mind in a negative way. But it's a process whereby God, through his word, 
sanctifies us and transforms us from within. So we need to be faithful in our responsibilities to be disciplined in what God has commanded us to do. Psalm 119. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Is this a lamp to your feet? Is this a lamp and a light to your path? Are you in the scripture in order to know where God is taking you, in order to, to light up your pathway to go? Or is it just the case where it's like, Lord, bless me where I'm going, which is often the case. We go somewhere and we ask God to bless it, rather than using him, using his word as a light and a lamp to our path and seeking where he would have us go. Again in Psalms, your word have I treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. Having God's word stored in our heart, which can only happen by reading it or listening to it or getting it in in us, it protects us against temptations and helps us in times of need. Your word have I treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. But it has to be in here. We have to get it in here. It doesn't just magically happen if we're not in his word. In Psalm 119, again, your word is very pure. Therefore, your servant loves it. Finally, is that that something that we can honestly say ourselves that we love it. Do we love his word? Because this is, this is God's revelation of himself. Do we love God's word? We know that we should love it, but does the testimony of our life and our actions match up with that? And we... We in the West, especially, have a great deal of responsibility because we have abundant access to the Word of God and other related resources. Will we squander the blessing we have or will we make the most of it? Because I, I do believe there will be a time coming when we won't have as much access to the word as we do now. So will we squander the opportunity we have? Or will we make the most of it? There are plenty of Christians overseas who would love to get their hands on a Bible, but they can't. And yet we have I have shelves full of them 
and yet are they collecting dust or are we making the most of it? I do have uh, a small caveat to what I've said and that is I do believe that if you cannot, if you do not have the scripture, let's say you're in a North Korean prison, I do believe God is still able to work and guide you. But if we neglect the scriptures, is God going to give us other special revelation when we have his revelation right here? Is he going to bless our laziness? I doubt it. So may I encourage you, and I'm not, I'm not trying to insinuate that you're not already, but may I encourage you to get into his word and learn to love it. I know as, a, as you know, new Christians, you can look at it with intimidation because it's, it's like, how on earth am I supposed to learn all this? What's it talking about? You know, it makes no sense, especially if you start from the Old Testament. What is it? But it's through the discipline of reading it that it all starts to, to come together. It's not until you read through it a few times that you start to put all the pieces together. Oh, this is talking about this other passage. Oh, this is a fulfillment. Um, and it begins to come together like a puzzle. But that will only happen if we're diligent in it. If we're not, then we'll never put the puzzle together. And it will never make sense to us. So, I'll leave you with that. Let's pray. Oftentimes it's, it's a... We, we, we use the excuse we have no time or we don't have enough time. But the reality is that we have an abundant amount of free time. We just choose to use it and spend it in other ways. We, we always find time, we always find you know, three hours to go watch a movie and an hour each night to watch the news. Um, we find time to play footy and go visit friends. And yet we never find time to, to read his word. Father, thank you indeed for the word that you have given us. Lord, that you have kept a reliable copy and source of your holy scriptures for us Lord for this age that we live in where there is so many opinions and so many teachings of man Lord you have given us your word to guide and direct us Father I do pray that you would put in us a a hunger and a thirst for your word 
that we would not neglect it, Lord, but that we would store it up in our hearts so we would know what you require of us, so that we would know how we are to interact with you and approach you so that we would know how to reach the lost. We would know how to spend this one life we have for you, Lord. May you bless this church, Lord. Bless John, Lord. And may you use this church to get your glorious gospel to the lost in this community, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.